This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name's Joris Peels, and this is another edition of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we have Farragol Coulter, uh, Coulter on the 3D Pod today. He's one of the well, the most exciting researchers working in 3D printing. And uh, he does some pretty crazy stuff as well. So essentially what uh, first caught my, uh, my attention, he was printing elastomers, which is difficult. And then he was printing them on inflated substrate. So he, he well, essentially he was print, printing them on like balloons, right? And then he was making kind of actuators out of them. And then he made prosthetics. And then he made robotic actuators. Then what else did he do? Did he, did he, like tons of stuff. And now he's working on an eight axis, an eight axis robot uh, for 3D printing or an eight axis production platform for 3D printing. So he does completely crazy stuff at ATI Zurich and uh, gives it a couple other places from foams and sponges to, uh, you know, to, to all sorts of stuff. And yeah, this eight axis machine is just completely insane. So, so yeah, welcome to the show, Fergal. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So first off, well, okay, first off, tell us how you got started in 3D printing, right? Because you, you came from a very different place, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I started out in electronic engineering back to my degree. Then after a while, trying my hand at being an artist and a, a musician, I realized that was going nowhere. So I, I moved to England and I uh, did a master's in smart materials in material technology and started a PhD and I was interested in artificial muscles particularly and I was given uh, there was the university had bought a few a few 3D printers that they really didn't want to use they were kind of janky um, bits from bytes machines really early on like 2010 um, and so one of the technicians just said here Ferg take this see what you can do with it and so yeah, I just started to, I took off the print head and started to print chocolate and that, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, like everywhere. The, the, hard, the hardest started, thing to move to print. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, Nutella first, you know, and then normal right, chocolate. Right. And, um, <laughs> but I kind of figured silicone might be a bit more um, interesting or, you know, it would have a bit more application, Useful. I suppose, um, <laughs> especially for artificial muscles. So, yeah, like I ripped apart these machines, started putting them back together um, as silicone printers and you know, just paste extruders in general. Then, yeah, little by little started to modify, you know, buy a kind of slightly better machine, um, modified that, started doing like I was also picking up bits and pieces from around the department. It was a, a combination of a product design department that um, had been an engineering department. So there's loads of nice old equipment, you know, pneumatics and different actuators. So I started kind of rooting around in drawers and in uh, in the, the skips around the place looking for bits that could be useful and just started kind of hobbling together machines. But um, you were doing this just for fun or this was just like, or well, did no, you actually... It was part of my PhD. Just for your PhD. So, yeah, okay. All right. So it's part of your discipline. Like the idea was to try and make these artificial muscles using dielectric elastomer actuators. 
mm-hmm. as the technology. So I was reading lots of papers on people doing this really manually, you know, by hand making these frames, either or maybe laser cutting frames or cutting them out of the scissors and stretching materials and sticking them on. Um, and I thought, you know, it's it's a really cool technology, but there must be a way of automating this. It's not, it doesn't seem sensible to be um, doing it all by hand. So, yeah, I started thinking about, you know, maybe balloons would be a good way to do it because you can make tubular structures that way. So I started hanging out with people that, you know, like different artists that worked in spraying and started asking them, you know, finding out how to use spray materials properly and ceramic experts so I could learn a little bit about, you know, slip casting or making porous structures um, and just kind of hanging out with different people that were suggesting different ways I could achieve what I wanted and learning from them all. So, yeah, that, that took me to the printing balloons. Which, yeah, so um, tell us about this this 3D printing on the balloon thing. Because it, it seems like when I first saw I saw the, I saw it first on YouTube, I think. or well, the, no, I don't know, at one point. But, uh, and there's also, like, so what's the deal with the – you say it very matter-of-factly, but I think it's actually kind yeah. of a dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, <right>. like, <laughs> yeah, I guess after – what I was doing it for four years, so it became just <laughs> a so mundane. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the idea was first to to make a shape, to mold a shape in gypsum, which I could make permeable. So this was using a really old ceramic technique, um, where they would make a mold from from gypsum and then push push air through the um, through the plaster body as it was crystallizing. And that would drive away some of the some of the water, the kind of water that wasn't needed for crystallization, making it really permeable. Um, so, I mean, th- this was a technique invented in the 1950s, I think. It was called the RAM technique, a RAM process. And so this was for making big ceramic bodies like toilets and sinks, you know. So they'd make these big press dyes. And then when they wanted to take the ceramic body from the... The mold, they could just drive air into it and it would kind of, you know, detach. I kind of miniaturized this process, making little, you know, initially these cigar shapes um, that, I could, that I could print on um, or spray on rather. Um, because I guess the thing with dielectrical elastomer actuators as a technology, you need really, really thin layers. Ideally, you know, from say 10 micrometers, 10, 20, 30, 40 per layer and you would make a an elastic layer then you make a conductive layer then elastic dielectric and conductive in this sandwich then you can pulse pulse a voltage across the, the different conductive layers and it kind of squashes the rubber to achieve thin layers i i started to spray silicone um and this was you know just taking like smooth on dragon skin really like standard stuff um mixing it with a solvent and spraying that. So I figured out how to make that work kind of nicely. Um, and by spraying that onto these, these air permeable shapes, I was then able to inflate them. Um, and so, yeah, okay, that gave me a, a balloon, which 
I soon realized, you know, and I should have known from being a kid playing with balloons, but they never, they never um, are the same shape twice. You know, you I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I've got this substrate now. What am I going to do? How am I going to print on this? So I, I had this. Um, I found this laser, this laser measurement device that the university had. And so I was saying, okay, I can program this thing. I can, it's just a single, you know, single laser spot that triangulates and gives, um, gives a position, you know, pretty accurately, 10, 15 micron accuracy. So I, I put that onto the printhead and I was able so to was, use that to measure the balloon. Right. So at every uh, point that you're about to lay down some material, you're, you're checking your distance from the balloon. So you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, it didn't have to be balloon too every high resolution. Right? You know, I right. was, I realized that you can describe a, a balloon in CAD, you know, it's a really smooth surface. Right. So I think for, for the entire balloon, maybe I used what was 16 points in a circle and then maybe 10 circles along the length of the, um, along the length of the balloon. So, you know, 160 points was enough to describe uh, a balloon the size of a football. Wasn't the balloon changing all the time, though? Because it's losing air? Um, no, I was, I was keeping the, the pressure constant. And, you know, after ah, inflating it, it, I'd then kind of lock off the air pressure. So, it took, actually, that was one of the hardest things was to make the whole thing airtight. You know, right. at the beginning, it was yeah, losing yeah. pressure all the time. So... <laughs> There was lots and lots of, you know, bathroom sealer being used. Um, <laughs> and eventually I got, you know, found all the spots that, um, that the air was leaking out of. And so then it was kind of easy. I had a, f you know, I could hold the pressure in that balloon overnight if I wanted, um, as, I, as I did. Because I ended up finding that, you know, I could print, print over the surface pretty quick. It would take maybe an hour to do the full balloon. but then. The silicone I was using, I found it stuck much better. There was all sorts of kind of problems that I came across. Like the, after I sprayed the silicone onto the balloon, it was pretty shiny. And um, then trying to use a laser to, to measure this thing when it was shiny, oh. <laughs> it, it was giving me these kind of false readings. So I go in and, you know, dust it down with talcum powder, like a, with baby powder, basically. <laughs> Um, but then that kind of prevented the next layer of silicone sticking so well. So I realized if I left it overnight, the, the silicone that I printed would kind of absorb this talc and create a really good bond. So, um, yeah, I, I used this slow curing silicone and after 12 hours sitting there, it would, uh, it would be cured and I could then, um, take the air pressure out of it and be left with this kind of weird, structure which you know was kind of both under tension and compression at the same time and that was a, i guess it's there's not too many printers that are even doing that still where you have different stresses in the at least different stresses in the the printed body that you want to be there i guess it's it's pretty easy to have a stressed print um <laughs> otherwise when you don't want it so but then um, again so so then you went into well you did a couple of things with this right i mean, I mean this was uh so you had you made 4d structures right and then you made a heart valve as well and then also like some soft robotic stuff right all with the same kind of base yeah. idea right or, yeah exactly the same so once i had figured out how to print tubular structures you know making this four axis printer um 
I mean, yeah, with four axes. It was really a three-axis system, but one was rotating, you know, like a, a lathe. Because ah, ah. in the end, I, I realized it, I didn't need a, a true fourth axis. I could just always print, you know, along the, the y-axis with the, the substrate rotating underneath. But what was kind of fun was I had to, you know, I, I was using Rhino Grasshopper to calculate all the tool paths. Of course. Because obviously there, does, <laughs> there doesn't exist a, a slicer for this thing. Um, so I kind of made my own, whatever you would call it, like tool path system. Um, not exactly a slicer, but because it's a balloon that's kind of fatter in the center than at the tips, um, what ends up happening is as you rotate it, the, the surface is traveling faster much faster at the kind of equator, if you like, compared to the poles, um, because it's you know fatter at the equator. So I then had to work out some algorithms to speed up and slow down depending on the the height of the substrate at any point, and you know the angle and all this kind of stuff. So that was quite a lot of fun actually working working out these these systems. Um, so I got really into using Grasshopper at this stage, and then started to find particularly like I got a, a job in in Zurich I, well, I got a few different jobs actually at once but um one was in Dublin one was in Zurich like in Zurich we were doing hard valves and then suddenly I realized I needed more than three axis I needed four then five you know? um and so I started working on the algorithms for doing this and this was, again, a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot um, building machines as well to do it because at the time we couldn't even find a, a five-axis printer available. I guess there's a few now, but um, this was 2015, I think. So, yeah, I just bought a CNC gantry and threw a, a two-axis table onto it and started working further on the, the algorithms, spraying and extruding. Um, and kind of upgrading my my systems, I I didn't have to look in the bin anymore for unloved bits of um, pneumatic gear. I was able to, to buy <laughs> kind of slightly higher quality stuff. Yeah, kind of side by side. I was I was working in Dublin then on a on an artificial pancreas system. So this was, I guess, geometry wise a bit simpler because it it just had to be a um, like a, a cell encapsulation device, which was ostensibly planar you know just a, a kind of a little bottle that was quite thin um but i started to look a lot at how to use spraying and extrusion in concert to to change the um the surface properties of these these devices that i was printing so when implanted cells would actually start to grow upon them rather than reject them, you know, kind of changing, say, the hydrophobicity of the, the surface and this kind of thing, and making it porous, making it permeable. So this was a real interesting project. It was, a, it was funded by the EU. And we were, you know, had a lot of partners who are working on cells and working on different um, gels to implant. Um, so it was, it was great to work with all these clinicians. I learned a lot about implantable devices that way. So yeah, that kind of became my my main two projects for a long time: the heart valve and the pancreas. And really, up until the pandemic struck. Um, so just before the pandemic, I moved to Zurich full time and um, was just getting getting started on um, some some more implantable devices like stents and this kind of thing. 
Um, but when the pandemic struck, we couldn't go into the lab anymore. So I asked my professor, you know, <laughs> working from home, I was like, oh, you know, I, I can't really do too much at home. I need to be in the lab. So maybe, you know, can I start building a new printer at home in my, in my bedroom? So he told me that was fine. Um, you know, we've got to do something, right? It's like not read uh, read papers for six months. So, um, so yeah, I started to really think about building printers from the from the ground up. You know, after everything I'd learned the previous eight nine years, what did I really want from a printer, and how could I? How, also, how could I build it when I didn't have a workshop? You know, there was supply chain issues across the, the world. So I started to go real simple. I just bought a, an open an open builds gantry and started to get bits from, um, you know, cameras, camera focusing systems and like video camera rails and rotations at axes. And because that's really nice, all the kind of modular system that you get for cameras, the Arca Swiss kind of profiles are really good nicely machined so i started putting together this multi-axis printer um and you know i was able to see okay where are the problems here you know if i want to have a rotating table and i want a rotating print head at the same time you know how is this going to work together and i was able to really start to learn a lot from uh, building this fairly kind of crappy system really when i look back at it now just this bedroom system um, but by the time pandemic was it's still not over officially, is it? But, you know, like when you're allowed back into the lab, I was able to um, really go to town on building this machine. So I, I started making this one meter by one meter system. Um, so massive build area with, you know, I attached it to the walls. So it was really, really stable. Um, so the whole thing was um, then... Over the next two years, I started building it and kind of building everything. I learned, you know, <laughs> I learned some good machining as well. And I mean, I also had access to the, the workshops here, which are fabulous workshops and some really great technicians to do stuff that, that I couldn't possibly do, um, you know, especially if I needed a, a you know, multi-axis mill part. I could get that done with the, with the guys in the workshop. It's been a, a real... Um, journey getting here so now this this kind of eight axis system that i've built um is i just only yeah. today put up a, a video describing i know the, i think i think, I think at this point if you're like usually we try to describe everything in the 3d pod uh but i think this would be a good moment <laughs> if you're if you're pod, if you're <laughs> able to to go to youtube and just type in fergal coulter's f-a-f-e-r-g-a-l and then space, then Coulter, C-O-U-L-T-E-R. And look at the 8-axis multi-material 3D printing system. That's criminally few views, by the way. Uh, but um, so first off, why would we want an 8-axis 3D printer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's criminally few views. I only put it up two hours ago. So I guess oh, fair enough. give the video a chance. <laughs> um, why would we want an 8-axis? Yeah. Um, I've asked myself that a lot recently, too. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the big things so i'm the the latest project that i'm working on is making a, a glove for 
for rehabilitation purposes. So say somebody who's had a stroke or um, and wants a kind of artificial muscle glove. Um, now, printing a, printing a glove or printing onto something on a, the shape of a hand, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of different angles. And to try and get a nozzle in, in between the fingers, for example, needs a lot of... Um, needs a really tip it's a lot of work um yeah no it's so complicated that's a very complicated is, request <laughs> yeah and I mean, for years as i was demonstrating my my balloon printer or whatever people would often ask me okay so balloons are cool but could you do something like the hand and i was like no no chance that's really hard <laughs> but it was sticking you know it was niggling in the back of my mind it's like uh, i really want to do this firstly yeah like by integrating more complicated scanners, I've, I've been able to really take um, a proper scan of the hand now. One of the problems is, say you're printing on a shape like the hand and you're holding on, the printer is holding your mandrel, your, um, your workpiece um, by the wrist. Then when you start to tilt that, the, the wrist will not move too much, but the fingertips, it's a really, really large arc length. Um, and that's going to be a, a bit of a problem because even the smallest change in angle, if you want to print around the tip of the fingertip, for example, um, you know, that's going to move through 90 degrees or 180 degrees. Um, so in that case, maybe it's better to have the, the glove or the mandrel facing you know, upwards and just move the print head around the, um, the fingertip. So, yeah, in that case, I want something, a print head that can um, tilt and rotate at the same time. But also I want the glove to be able to tilt and rotate at the same time. So, you know, theoretically, you could use two robot arms to do the same thing. Um, but that becomes even more complicated in my mind. And also when you use robotic arms, you're really limited to how much weight you can have on the, the tip, right? You, you can mm. put one or two print heads at most. And I want to print loads of different materials. I want to use, you know, microjet for doing conductive tracks. Um, I want to have like paste extrusion for silicones and also um, FDM or pellet extrusion for doing, for doing like fused filament stuff. Um, and then I want scanners as well on top of all of this and sensors to know, you know, position, feedback and everything. So that's why I didn't, one of the reasons I didn't use robot arm in the first place was because I wanted to have so much weight at the end of my printhead that I'd need a giant machine, a giant robot arm, something the size of, a, you know, like that would be used in a, a car factory or something. Right. And, I mean, in a, in a lab environment, that's just not feasible, right? Because um, you need a safety cell and you need huge amounts of space. And we didn't have that. You know, we have, I had a big bench to work on and that's it. So yeah, I, um, I stuck with a kind of an XYZ system with multiple rotations instead. And also partly because I, this is what I understood, you know, um, I had built up to this. And so going from five axis to six or seven, whatever, eight, but yes, let's stop at seven really. But I could work out the algorithms for this and, you know, doing it with a, with a pair of robotic arms, uh, there's software that can do it, of course, but I'm a bit of a, a megalomaniac when it comes to my software. I like to program it all myself as well, you know, with that, you know, I wanted to stick with, with Rhino or with Grasshopper or other. I don't know, does this answer why would you do with eight axes? But um, 
it was what I came to realize was I needed that many to print onto a hand, basically. When I first heard you talk about that, we talked about this on a phone call, and I first thought, like, it's just the kind of guy you ask him to drive a nail in, and he comes back with, like, a cruise missile, you know? You know, you just kind of like, <laughs> yes, it does what it, where I asked it to, but is it, but actually, I think <laughs> this is, like, something that I think you should have, most people would have just said no to this. No, I can't do this. <laughs> have a nice day, right? <laughs> and I said you went and invented this thing, but if I, if I look at it, it looks, it's, if we look at, for example, direct ink, right? or using multiple technologies like to make a scaffold and then make a heart, right? For in bioprinting, for example, you would need exactly this system, right? Yeah. And all these other people working in extrusion and working on all these other systems for FDM-like systems and gantry-like systems for printing organs, that's never going to cut it, right? And we need something like this eight-axis uh, thing, you're, this monster thing you're building in order to combine the scaffolding with the cells and to provide it with other materials and medicine and stuff in order to actually get an organ to print. So I think you've actually developed mm -hmm. something we totally need, <laughs> but nobody else has figured that out yet, right? Uh, well, yeah, I guess part of what I, I really like doing is like printing continuous fibers over these, you know, over these curved substrates. Um, because that's really, when you look at things in the body, they're not built by, you know, 2D layers stacked on top of each other. It's really hard to have a continuous fiber that wraps around, you know, yeah, a heart valve or whatever, like an aorta, this kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, it becomes really enjoyable to to work out, you know, look at how the how nature does it, how the fibers form in a in a natural body, and then trying to copy that. After that, you can make really thin substrates as well. You know, I can. By using spray or by microjetting, I can make kind of 50 or 100 micron high aspect ratio substrates and then print fibers onto that. And so that, yeah, that becomes pretty useful. And eventually this could be good for yeah, bioreactors or seeding cells on this kind of thing. Um, and being able to then, you know, move them around, pulse them a little bit and give the, the cells kind of a, a realistic movement. Right, because you can yeah, put I, every I, tool head on on that system, right? Mm -hmm. They can all fit because that's why you did it that way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really think that's a really good idea. I mean, I think I think in in bioprinting is the first thing I see that this, but also in kind of like we're seeing an emerging area of well through soft robotics, but also some other things like combining like electronics and combining electronics and biological systems and electronics and polymers and all this kind of stuff. And also for this, to combine this kind of stuff, you'd need multiple tool heads and you'd need like these eight, uh, the eight axes to, to print on all the different angles and using these multiple tool heads, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think also for yeah, printed electronics, say, you know, we, certainly you have examples of like, like N-Script, for example, that are doing fabulous, um, fabulous multi-axis stuff for printing conformal electronics. Same with Optimec. Both of them do really nice machines. Um, I guess the funny thing for, for me, I had looked at um, N-Script machines, you know, just videos online, kind of like gear porn watching these videos. But um, I didn't have the budget to buy these, you know, million dollar yeah. machines. Yeah. And so it, I was able to do this system instead, which was significantly cheaper. I, all it cost was, well, I mean, all it cost was my time and a, quite a bit of money as well. Like, But um, not as much. Yeah, I mean, part of what I'm doing now is trying to turn all of the design files into something 
that other people can use as well. So I open source the whole thing and try and make it available as a lab deposition system. Now, you know, it won't be as accurate as the Enscript machine or the Optimec machines. I think, you know, when you build pieces yourself, it the accuracy is not quite as good. Um, but mostly if you're using, you know, two, 300 micrometer nozzles, 400, whatever, um, you don't need to be absolutely precise. You just need to be very precise. And that's what I, I think I've managed to achieve here. Um, and hopefully, I mean, I don't know how many people will actually pick up the, the open source files and start building it because I don't know how many people have years to spare. I hope I've been doing it in a very modular form. And for that, you know, maybe people will be able to just take the, say, two axis of the printhead or some of the software and kind of maybe combine it with other software that people are developing. Say like, you know, the um, fullcontrol.xyz is a really nice example of an open system that can do multi-axis. Um, and also the open 5X machine that is a, a multi-axis system on a, on a Prusa. And both of these are really cool. Um, so hopefully as I make my stuff um, fit for public consumption, you know, where it's tidy, like the, <laughs> the code is, is not an absolute mess and the, um, the, the design files are all kind of nicely laid out, which they're nearly there, I think. Um, then I'll put it all up on GitHub and see, can we get some other people interested in working on this thing too? Okay, I, I love it. I really love it. I think, and I think, especially also another thing, soft robotics, the same thing. What are you going to make soft robotics in? Where how are you going to combine these things? I think it's, if it's either going to be your printer or something that looks an awful lot like your printer, let's say. So and and yeah, the, the, the changing tool heads will need for that as well, and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, you you give the example in the video where you're printing onto a hand. So I imagine that you're thinking right away of doing a soft robotic glove, if you will. So as you were saying, yeah, exactly. aided a human hand. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're just doing it with like the soft robotic air pocket system um, to flex it. And then you have a separate controller coming off of there. That, yeah. Well, actually, that's, we're, that's we're trying to avoid. <laughs> it's not so much the air pocket system because, well, like I love soft robotics and have, you know, looked at what's been going on for years there. I kind of feel that the pneumatic systems, you know, there's always this compressor needed like some right. source of compressed air and it's that's not portable is it you know you make this this glove that's really nice and light very comfortable and then what you have a you have a giant machine next to you that's yeah, pumping so, air yeah right. uh, so what we're doing we're back to using these dielectric elastomers i'm collaborating with um the with a group in in lausanne and um, professor herb shea's group who's been developing these soft actuators these these electrically stimulated ones. And this should be a much lighter, you know, then you only need a battery rather than a big compressor. I mean, the force is generated, they're not nearly as big, but, you know, you can get around that by, you know, amplifying it through elastic strain energy and this kind of thing. So the kind of long-term goal is to do, I mean, it's still soft robotics, right, with DEA, but, um, but, using electrical and kind of portable systems rather than rather than using compressed air that said i mean you know using like my machine should be good for um compressed systems as well for air systems 
um, uh, because at the end. And, and what effectively do you, is a build volume? Because that's the problem. I think we've been skating around the problem. Of course, if you oh, want yeah. multiple tool heads, you always going to like shrink the build volume. It's always going to be, you know, so what kind of effective build volume do you have about? Um, so it's about 30 centimeters sphere. And um, so 30 centimeters diameter of a sphere around the, um, around the workpiece holder. So yeah, with a, a one meter by one meter by one meter, give or take, that gives about a, a 30 centimeter area. So that's pretty big. I mean, it's big enough for a hand and a wrist, which was what I aimed for. But then the- that's, you know, provided you need to move to tilt and rotate the, the workpiece. You know, if you only want to do it on the, say with a, a flat substrate and, you know, rotate the, the print head and the, um, maybe rope that like do it in a kind of polar form, the build volume would be much bigger. So that's cool. And then there's another thing I want to talk about. There's another, uh, work thing that I saw as well. Like, uh, it's this multi-scale porous soft tissue implants thing, right? That you also mm-hmm. put on the side and stuff like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, this was the, I mentioned earlier, the, um, artificial pancreas, at least part of this project. And so the, the concept here was, um, people that have, type 1 diabetes and particularly there's a, a condition called brittle diabetes where um you know it's a small number of people have it but um where they can suddenly go into insulin shock with no prior warning there's a an established technique where well when somebody dies and donates their pancreas they can um refine out the the insulin producing islets and they can inject that into the the portal vein of the diabetic sufferer and those islets can produce insulin for a period of time but it's a it's an autoimmune disease and therefore you know for a certain length of time these these islets these cells will survive and produce insulin but eventually the the body will attack them also they're you know from somebody else so um the the body kind of has a immuno reaction instead of having them just directly injected into a vein the the concept is using a cell encapsulation device and this is where you put them inside of a porous body that can protect them where the pores are basically smaller than um than blood cells you know than white blood cells so the body can't get to the um implanted cells but nonetheless these pores allow the passage of glucose insulin and oxygen through it so kind of like a basically a a filter bag is the is the idea um that that isolates these cells from the rest of the body and allows them to live a little bit longer but we you know i mean this of course is not my or our invention there's thousands of researchers working on these concepts and what I guess the the original part that we came up with was developing these silicone structures. Now, firstly, silicone is brilliant for the passage of oxygen, and that's one of the main problems with implanting cells in a in a device is the the cells will become starved starved of oxygen and die pretty quickly. So, silicone is a great material in that way. Um, but we also came to realize that by doing an extra coating on the, the surface of the membrane. Um, this coating is a kind of 
what would you describe it? It's easiest to describe it as an analogy. You know, when you dribble honey from a spoon and the, the honey will kind of do these loops, these curls. And also anyone who's ever printed, use the 3D printer where the, um, the nozzle is too far from the surface, you see that you get these, these kind of um, these looped structures up here. We came to realize that this was kind of a, a really nice geometry that's extremely open pore, so the body can kind of grow into it, but it also immobilizes the device and allows the, um, the implant to remain fixed in one position. So when blood vessels start to grow, they don't get damaged from the movement of the device and this kind of thing. So yeah, it was a combination of using spraying and this liquid rope coil effect, as it's called, to make a coating on the surface of a device that the body quite readily grows new blood vessels and kind of surrounds um, very quickly without creating immunoreaction. And that then formed the basis of a cell encapsulation device that we developed that's crazy dude that's yeah. completely crazy but, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so what do, you, what do you hope to do now so, so in the near term you're going to be working on this eight axis does it have a name by the way it doesn't have a name right i guess i'm go i'm going to use the the domain name expanding on dot xyz um to to kind of disseminate all the information um like the the machine itself doesn't have a a pet name um <laughs> yes <laughs> i've gone through a few different names none of them are i could say on right. <laughs> in public but, <laughs> not of the, not all of them are too pleasant but um yeah like this expanding on dot xyz is is my idea at the moment at least as a domain name to you know as a website that people can go to and um find more information on and so this is the idea of having yeah expandable um expandable devices and kind of inflatable structures all this kind of stuff and and, and i'd call it like something like the monster something really cool and how do you do the toolpath generation for this because that's got to be completely insane right um yeah well again i'm using grasshopper mostly yeah. so i take i read in the the scan data first so i'm using a, a profilometer nowadays a 2d laser profilometer which i can read um, you know, I I scan the the hand and move it around, do a few different passes, and I get a, a mesh from that. From the mesh, then I I simplify it a little bit um, and try and you know combine all the different parts of the the mesh or the the multiple scans into a single scan. Then it depends on the part of the hand as well, you know, because I I prefer working with nerves surfaces rather than meshes they're just a little bit more um it's easier to work out say perpendicularity to a to a surface than it is to a mesh this kind of thing um and it's less noisy so yeah i kind of do a few simplify simplifications of the mesh also the scan data there's just too much data there for me to work with so i have to simplify it down and then after that i'm able you know i, I can just choose point to point if I want it depends on what I want also you know if I want to do a a circuit I can just project I can make a, a circuit design in 2d and project that onto the surface mm. but if I want to do something that wraps around the, the finger or around the hand um, then I can you know take the section that I'm interested in turn that into a surface and start calculating 
geodesic tool paths over over those surfaces and that allows me to do kind of you know fun structures like these auxetic um, bistable structures and this kind of thing are useful for clamping onto the hand so yeah there's a there's a few different um techniques that i've i've developed over the years and you know i guess i've tried to publish them at different times how i go about doing it i guess if you look up my my name on google scholar you'll find a few publications on the different techniques and and for what do you hope to achieve then apart from just kind of more making the machine a bit safe for consumption and uh what, what do you hope to work towards the next couple of years i mean i guess the biggest um the biggest dream i have in this one is getting into um making biological structures that are not going to be implanted i mean one of the things i you know i've worked in medical devices for quite quite a few years now and it's really interesting you know you always have this kind of feeling that oh maybe we can really develop something that helps people here um but there's a lot of animal testing and you know it, it it's kind of tough I'm, I'm not crazy nobody's ever crazy about animal testing right um so what i'm hoping to do is work on structures that um can act as an analog or you know a kind of a benchtop model for a simple structure that you know, approximates, say, the heart valve or some kind of various things that you could seed cells on and maybe test drugs on these. So they're kind of a, a more realistic benchtop model. Um, and, you know, making these devices that, you know, can can be used at least as an early stage research before having to put them into an animal to test further. So kind of right. cut down on so that's one of the big goals I have in life, I guess, making these animal-free research models. Um, and then also, the, you know, this glove is a real challenge. I have a few years to go on this project now. And it's nice also because making a glove for rehabilitation, um, in the end, that's for humans, right? And um, humans can actually say if they want to be test subjects or not. <laughs> they can give the permission. So um, that's a nice thing. <laughs> And I also have a feeling that, you know, as I start to disseminate all this um, info on how I built the printer, you know, hopefully some people will come along and say, hey, you know, can we also, you know, get some info on this and start to build collaborations and, you know, who knows what kind of projects come out of it. Well, indeed, indeed. I, I, Fergal, you're, you're a real inspiration. You're making some, doing some completely crazy completely insane <laughs> cutting edge work and i think uh this eight axis system cool. is, is is incredible and also all of these like uh the bubble inflation stuff you've done is also incredible and i think you're just like you're kind of like a buckminster filler kind of guy for me you're ahead of the curve <laughs> wow. so we'll figure out really what you're doing you. years from yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, i mean i mean and 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 we'll figure out what 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 you're doing in a while from now let's say <laughs> Uh, and thank you so much for for being on the show today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It was great. Uh, and uh, Max, thank you for being here as well. No, always, always fun. Thank you, Joyce. And you, thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.